Hello, and welcome back to our fifth class in our series on Russia and the Battle of Gog Magog that was prophesied in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International, and I'll be your teacher for this class. In our previous classes, we determined that Gog is a demonic angel that inspires leaders of men to attack God's nation of Israel. Ezekiel tells us that Gog will be moved by God to come against Israel in the latter days. That's those days that concern the 70th week of Daniel, what we call the Tribulation. We next identified Gog's land as the area of the world called the Scythian Empire of Ezekiel's day. This is the land just north and east of the Black Sea, what is today primarily the Ukraine, Russia, and the Caucasus nations. Throughout this series, I have sought to help you to picture the events by using current events in the news, nations in the news, and individual leaders as examples. My purpose isn't to identify those as fulfillments of Ezekiel 38 and 39, but to demonstrate that Ezekiel's prophecy is feasible in our day. Our study of Ezekiel has enabled us to consider the four possible time scenarios of the battle. Those four possible scenarios are either before the rapture, between the rapture and the start of the tribulation, the midpoint of the tribulation, or the end of the millennium. And you'll recall we demonstrated why we believe it's between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. In our last class, we looked at the motivation of Israel's attackers. We differentiated between the two prime motivations of spoil and prey. We saw that while Gog's goal will be spoil or plunder, Gog's allies' goal will be prey. That is the total destruction of the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. We concluded by determining those allies of Gog in terms of today's geographic boundaries. Now, as we conclude our study of the Battle of Gog Magog, the first battlefield of the latter days, we're going to focus our attention on God's purposes, why he has brought forth Gog's fearsome army to attack his chosen nation of Israel, and why this battle will trigger the start of the 70th week of Daniel, the Tribulation. It's very important to understand why God has brought Gog to come against Israel. Now, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are part of the church. You are part of the Bride of Christ. As we're going to explain in another class, you will serve the Lord in the millennium during his thousand-year rule on earth. For John the Apostle tells us that we are going to assist his rule and reign during that time. Therefore, we need understanding of many things. Ezekiel 44, we see that this task is one of great responsibility. For us to perform our tasks, we need to understand the mind of God and his purposes and how they relate to Israel and the world. This understanding will help us to rule and reign with him. Therefore, an understanding with respect to the battle of Gog Magog 
is important for us to know, and that's found in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Through Ezekiel, God gives us three primary reasons for introducing the tribulation with this military engagement of Gog. The first reason he gives is to magnify and sanctify himself and be known in the eyes of the nation. His second reason is to allow the heathen to see his righteous judgments. And third, and very importantly, to renew Israel's covenant relationship to her Lord from that day forward. Ezekiel tells us how God will do this. And we can find that in Ezekiel chapter 39. So if you'll turn to chapter 39, we're going to read verses 27 to 29. So again, Ezekiel 39, verses 27 to 29. When I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them unto their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. You see, God will do it by honoring Israel. Notice, in the sight of many nations, by hiding his face from Israel no longer, and by pouring his spirit upon Israel. Given this overview now, let's look more closely at each of these reasons. Reason number one, to magnify and sanctify God and be known in the eyes of the nation. Uh, if you'll look at Ezekiel 38 and verse 23, God gives us this first reason. Ezekiel 38, verse 23. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Underlying this statement is the idea that up until Israel's miraculous deliverance at the Battle of Gog Magog, the nations and people of the world gave little or no thought to the God of Israel. They regarded him as being insignificant or non-existent, unworthy of any national or personal recognition or consideration. Now, certainly, all true believers know that the God of the Bible is the true and living God. But unbelievers of the world make no allowances for his involvement in the affairs of nations or their own daily lives, for that matter. Through the miraculous defeat of Gog and his armies, the reputation or the name of God will go from insignificance to greatness. For this word here in verse 23, thus will I magnify myself. Magnify means to become great or increase in importance. You see, this stunningly awesome victory will cause all peoples and nations to acknowledge that only God could have given the world's most hated nation, Israel, deliverance. 
at this point in history, no one will doubt God's existence. Now, this doesn't mean that they will trust in him or turn to him for salvation, but it does mean that they will set him apart, for that's what sanctify him means as the most powerful being in all creation. This recognition will go well beyond just the borders of Israel and the people in Israel, for God declares, I will be known in the eyes of many nations. Finally, in verse 23, we note that the Jewish people will recognize him as the Lord. Remember that? The covenant name of God for Israel. We taught that way, way back in our beginning class. So that's reason number one. Now, reason number two is to allow the heathen to see his righteous judgments. If you'll turn over to Ezekiel 39 and verse 21. You see, the heathen's people's acknowledgement of God will be more than a, merely a response to his power. For God's second purpose of the battle of Gog Magog is to demonstrate that he is a righteous judge who executes righteous judgment. Look at Ezekiel 39, verse 21. And I will set my glory among the heathen, or the nations, and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid upon them. See the key word there is judgment. And he's laid his hand upon him, on them. This suggests that the peoples of the world are not a, a part of the alliance. You see, when he speaks about the heathen here, those are the ones that weren't destroyed in this alliance. They're not a part of the alliance. Those people will recognize that the Lord destroyed Gog's coalition. Perhaps they will have apprehensively observed the ever-increasing violence and threat to world peace that was being perpetuated by these nations of Gog's alliance as the world stage was being arranged in the years that led up to this battle. And perhaps the people have longed for someone to end the evil and establish lasting peace. To these nations, God's acts appear as justified and righteous. While these two reasons are very important, I believe it is the third reason that God gives for the battle that will answer the question why this battle will trigger the start of the tribulation. We're now ready to answer the question, why will the battle of Gog Magog trigger the start of the seven-year tribulation, that time called the time of Jacob's trouble? The answer is God's third reason for the battle. Reason three, to renew Israel's covenant relationship to her Lord from that day forward. You see, God's third reason for the battle is to initiate Israel's return to a covenant relationship with him, a relationship that will continue on into eternity. So please turn to Ezekiel 39, and we're going to read verse 22. So, 
the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, when from that day and forward. Following Gog's defeat on that day, the grateful nation of Israel will begin the long, slow process of reconciliation with her Lord, a process that will take seven years to accomplish. They will begin to acknowledge what he has done for them as we read in now in verse 28. Then shall they know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them out of their own land, unto their own land, and have left none of them any more there. I have gathered them. You see, God gathered them to bring them back to realize that he is the Lord, the covenant God. In this verse, the Lord reminds them of their covenant that was recorded way back in Leviticus 26, verse 44. So turn, if you will, to Leviticus 26 and verse 44. You'll recall I stress that this is an important chapter that gives an entire overview of Israel and how God is going to work with them. So in verse 44 we read, Yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, when they're in their land of the enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them. In other words, just condensing it, neither to break my covenant with them. Why? For I am the Lord, the covenant name, their God. Notice here that God uses a key covenant phrase. I am the Lord, their God. He's linking these verses together in Ezekiel and Leviticus. Now, you may recall from our third class when we explained that Leviticus 26 is the summation of the covenant law for Israel. It, along with Deuteronomy, carefully explains the conditions of God's blessings or his cursings, Deuteronomy 30, verse 1, that are determined by Israel's behavior. Furthermore, he explained that during the captivity, during the scattering of verse 33 here, where he says, I will scatter you among the heathen and draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be desolate, your cities waste. They were in the cursing, or I, I think a better term, and the Bible does use it elsewhere, as chastening phase. And then in Leviticus 26, the Lord says in verse 28, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sin. It is this when he would hide his face from them during the chastisement. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel 39, in Ezekiel 39, in verse 28 that we've just looked at, we see, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. You see, then they're going to know it again. They're going to re-understand it and respond. God introduced the restoration and blessing phase with the battle of Gog Magog. 
Sadly for Israel, the cycle of turning to the Lord and walking away from the Lord and turning to him and walking away from him, it's an oft-repeated cycle for Israel. It's interesting as we study our scriptures, we find that on three separate occasions, God's chosen people, though, were chastised for disobedience and they then were restored in their covenant relationship after they repented as a nation. On two of these occasions, they rededicated the temple and resumed worshiping and sacrificing at the temple site in Jerusalem. You see, during the times of chastising, they couldn't offer their sacrifices. They couldn't worship according to the covenant. But on two occasions, they actually restored that relationship by sacrificing. When we take those two plus a third incident, we find that three times in their history, they committed to the covenant in the very same place. It was always in Jerusalem. In 960 BC, according to 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, it was at the temple dedication. In 536 BC, following Cyrus's decree to permit the first group's return from exile, that's Ezra chapter 3, and again in 443 BC, when Nehemiah returned to Israel to rebuild the walls, recorded in Nehemiah 8. Significantly, each of these events occurred on the same day of the respective years. That day was the Feast of Trumpets. That was des described back in Leviticus chapter 23. So I'm going to ask you to flip back to Leviticus 23. In terms of Leviticus, I think chapter 10, chapter 23, and 26 are some of the most crucial that everyone should study carefully. In Leviticus chapter 23, we have a listing of the seven feasts of the Lord. Verse 23 is the Feast of Trumpets, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, in the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall no, do, do no servile work therein, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Those are the instructions for the Feast of Trumpets. Now, I do not believe that this fact that three times on the Feast of Trumpets this significant type of event occurred. I also believe it is significant that each historical event follows a same pattern of the day. When the people would gather at the temple site as a nation for spiritual purposes. Now, prior to these days, sacrifices had not been offered for the nation at that site for quite a while. On those days, an altar had been built for sacrificing. The people recognized their covenant relationship to God, and they made a commitment to return to their covenant relationship with him in complete obedience as a nation from that day forward. God then recognized their intention and committed to it and their commitment by responding in a visible manner. Now, in Leviticus 26, we see that God anticipates a fourth time 
when Israel as a nation will turn to him in repentance following chastisement and be restored to the covenant relationship with him. So if you look at Leviticus 26, we're going to begin in verse 41. And that I also have walked contrary unto them, that's during the chastisement, and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If, now here's the if, then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they accept the punishment of their iniquity. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham. Will I remember, and notice I will remember the land. God's repetitive use of the word remember in this verse is very significant. For the Feast of Trumpets may also be called the Feast of Remembrance. For in Leviticus 23, back in verse 24, if we read a literal translation of the Hebrew, we read, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, shall ye have a Sabbath, a remembrance of blowing of trumpets and holy convocation. A remembrance of blowing of trumpets. Now, the Hebrew word for holy convocation in this verse is moed. There are three Hebrew words used in our Bible for the word feast, translated the word feast in the English. So you need to separate each of the three because that gives you added information to what is spoken of in the verse that that word is used. In the case of Moed, it signifies an appointment between God and Israel. Get that? An appointment. The word is used in the Old Testament to indicate that God sets the day, he sets the time, and the place for the people of Israel to gather throughout their history as an entire nation at the appointments. These appointments are also called the feasts of the Lord, even though food may or may not be part of the gathering. See, a feast isn't always just food, and that's why I like to think of it as the term moed as an appointment. God established seven yearly feasts or appointments for the people of Israel to come together at the temple site in Jerusalem where they would meet with him in their covenant relationship. Now, I've written a book on the feasts, and it's available, of course, through our website. Also, starting in January of 2017, Lord willing, I'll be presenting a series of lessons on the feasts on CMI-TV. Be sure to check our website for dates of these lessons. Okay, returning back here. Logically, the first such remembrance or gathering, or appointment, was to be the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles chapter 5 and verse 3. For this is the designated place for all feasts or appointments that will follow from that point on. Uh, we're told that in Second Chronicles 6.6. 6. The time of this dedication feast is always the first day of the seventh month. It is the Feast of Blowing of Trumpets. Now, contrary to what some Christians teach, the Feast of Trumpets does not represent the rapture. For the feasts are for the nation of Israel 
not the church. When the church is involved, it's almost a result of the action with Israel and the appointment with Israel. Don't get fooled by trumpets. Many of the feasts have blowing of trumpets also, besides the Feast of Trumpets. Now, the phrase, the blowing of trumpets, is a single Hebrew word. That Hebrew word literally means a blast of war or alarm. Now, while it can also include a shouting of joy, it is used most often in connection with war in the scriptures. Back in chapter 33 of Ezekiel, the prophet had warned Israel's watchmen that when he saw an enemy approaching, notice what they were to do. Go back to Ezekiel verse chapter 33 and look at verse 3. Ezekiel 33 verse 3. If when he seeth, who the watchman of verse 2, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, in other words, a threat, an enemy approaching, what shall he do? He shall blow the trumpet and warn the people. You see that? The watchman sees the armies coming. He's to blow a trumpet to warn the people. Having foreseen the approaching army that will begin or trigger the day of the Lord, the prophet Joel comments that the trumpet of alarm shall be blown when that day is coming. In Joel chapter 2 verse 1 we read, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord cometh for it is nigh at hand. That's Joel 2, verse 1. In verse 15, Joel carries on. He says, Joel calls for a national solemn assembly. <laughs> You've guessed it. It's a moed, a national appointment. The use of the word moed clearly links with the trumpets to the Feast of Trumpets. Blow the trumpet in Zion, he says. Sanctify a fast call a solemn assembly or appointment. That's Joel. So we have Ezekiel, Joel. Now, interesting, the prophet Zechariah informs Israel that when the enemy army approaches in the latter days, the Lord himself will blow his trumpet and key, he will come to her defense. That's in Zechariah 9.14 where we read, and the Lord shall be seen over them. His, his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God, covenant, shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. So we have Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, all combining trumpets when the armies approach and the Lord will deliver the nation in that day. These verses seem to indicate that the watchman of Israel is to blow the trumpet of alarm when he sees an enemy approaching. This is to be a warning to the people, but also, and don't miss this, a call for help to God. The Lord then in turn will blow his trumpet and come as a whirlwind to her rescue. It's, it's almost like what we've seen in some of those old westerns that we saw on television where people are shouting for help and help and they hear the cavalry coming with the trumpets blowing. 
the prophet Zephaniah now calls that this event is the great day of the Lord. That is the day of God's wrath and the day, catch this, of trumpet and alarm. Four prophets writing about trumpets, the enemy coming, the Lord coming to rescue Israel in that day. Then Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 19 says, My bowels, my bowels, I'm pained at my very heart. My heart maketh a noise in me. I can't hold my peace because thou hast heard. O oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. I hope you can see how significant this tie-in is of all these prophets. As we consider these references in the light of the teaching on the Feast of Trumpets, I've concluded that Israel now, as a nation, will seek to establish her covenant blessing relationship with God when, after he miraculously delivers her from Gog and his allies. This national response will not be an actual heart repentance leading to spiritual salvation. No, it's rather a national conscious speaking out in gratitude toward God and what he has done in his deliverance. You see, this largely secular nation will acknowledge God by desiring to resume worship and sacrifice at the temple site in Jerusalem. You see, as their conscience speaks to them, they saw God delivered. It's kind of their way of saying, let's thank God by starting sacrifices again. They would do it at only one place because God specified it had to be Jerusalem. Now, today there's an Islamic mosque on that site. It prohibits any sacrifices by Israel on the site. Now, God has allowed it to be there during the time of the Gentiles. But perhaps the great earthquake that God sends on the army of Gog Magog that he records in Ezekiel 38 and verse 19, it's going to level the mosque, enabling Israel to go up to the mount again. For we read, For in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. You see, God may level the mosque just as he toppled and destroyed the false god Dagon in David's day. Now, recognizing the prey aspect for Gog's attack that was to prove the superiority of their god over the god of Israel, the Muslim world will be forced to concede that Israel's god is greater than their god. Lacking the military resources and international support to oppose Israel's desire. Why do they lack the military resources? Because they were destroyed at the Battle of Gog Magog. And the international support now is gone that opposes Israel's desire to rebuild the temple. They're going to be forced to relent and allow it to be rebuilt. The building of the temple will only be possible if the Gentile domination of the site agrees or covenants with Israel to allow it. Biblically, we know that the tribulation begins with a covenant. Could this be the covenant?
It's my belief that the treaty or covenant between Israel and the Antichrist will give access to the Temple Mount and permission to resume sacrificing there. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 9. And there we'll be able to read about this specific covenant. It's very important that you see the verse as I talk about it. It'll help you to better understand part of why I believe that we're going to find the battle of Gog Magog between the rapture and the uh, start of the tribulation. So Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant or the agreement with many for one week. And in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation or offerings to cease. For the overspreading of abomination shall make it desolate even until the consummation that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Some key words here. First of all, always remember prophetically when we see a week in Daniel, that means seven years. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, the sacrifices and the offerings will cease to exist. Now, notice this carefully. This is the only verse that gives possible insight into the content of the covenant that Israel is going to make with the Antichrist for one week or the seven years of the tribulation. Notice, when the Antichrist breaks the covenant in the midst of the week, that's three and a half year point, the sacrifices and oblations or offerings will cease. This indicates, I believe, that this was the primary substance of the agreement. In other words, where he says in verse 27, he shall confirm the covenant or the agreement with Israel, the only thing that is mentioned that is canceled out on the covenant at this point is the sacrifices and offering. Now, many teach that it's merely going to be a peace treaty for the Middle East. Well, instead of being a peace treaty, although I do think that peace could be certainly a result of some of this, it's a treaty allowing Israel to resume sacrifices. This permission is going to be granted by the awestruck and fearful Gentile nations that have been forced to acknowledge Israel's God. Do you remember in our reason number one was that the nations would set apart God and magnify him? And therefore, the Gentile nations now allows Israel permission to sacrifice at the temple site. <laughs> you say, well, why does Israel require their permission? It's very simple, because Israel will still be under Gentile domination. Now, as a result of this covenant, Israel will quickly erect an altar. They'll resume sacrificing even before the temple is rebuilt. Yes, that's what I'm saying. They can do this without a temple. This isn't unique. This is the same situation that occurred during the time of Cyrus when Israel resumed their covenant relationship with the Lord by sacrificing, but the temple had not yet been rebuilt. The Jewish people, however, I believe, will waste no time in rebuilding their temple. Everything is being prepared even today in our world so that they could quickly build the temple once given permission. 
we know for certain that there will be a rebuilt temple by the midpoint of the tribulation because the Antichrist, we're told in other prophecies, enters and desecrates it, according to John in the book of Revelation. Now, for those of you who watched my lessons on the Olivet Discourse on CMI-TV, you'll remember that in Matthew 24, the Lord quoted Daniel in order to warn Israel of this future perilous event. He told them when they saw that abomination of desolation of the Antichrist in the holy place, the temple, what were they to do? They were to flee to the mountains. Matthew 24. Why don't you turn to Matthew 24? Matthew 24. We're going to begin reading in verse 15. When ye... Therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. You see, this, this context is tribulation. And when they see that, they're to know to flee. In other words, when they're forced to stop the sacrifices and the oblations. Now, Finally, a study of the three previous events that took place on the Feast of Trumpets. Remember, three times in history on the Feast of Trumpets, they met at the temple site, they started sacrificing and offering at the temple site. If we look at those three events, we see that in each case, God now no longer chastised the people, but he had ceased to hide his face. That phrase that reflects his them out of good covenant relationships of blessing and moving from chastisement to blessing. After they gathered together to observe the Feast of Trumpets, the appointment of trumpets, and began their regular sacrifices at that point. So too now, if we turn back to Ezekiel 39... we're going to read a significant statement by God. In Ezekiel 39, verse 29, Neither will I hide my face any more for them, from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Notice carefully now the context of this verse. This is the verse that concludes the Bible's teaching on the battle of Gog Magog. As we move into chapter 40 of Ezekiel, God now begins to describe the millennial temple, its worship, and the priesthood in great detail. Now, this is very appropriate, since Israel's going to then need these instructions when she resumes her worship and sacrifice at the temple site immediately following the events of Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, just so you understand, I believe that as we're reading in 40, we're reading of the period of the millennium. But the point that I'm making is when Israel, at the start of the tribulation, is allowed to start sacrificing again, they will be looking ahead to seeing how they're supposed to be doing it. They will grasp the context here, and so they'll be observing what they're to do in the millennium. They'll start during the tribulation 
or they will attempt to start it, and they'll be able to do it for three and a half years till the Antichrist stops it. I think it's exciting to recognize that these significant events for the nation of Israel will precisely follow what? The timing of the appointments or the feasts of the Lord. Therefore, the tribulation will officially begin with Israel's signing of the Antichrist agreement or covenant when, I believe, on the Feast of Trumpets, permitting her to sacrifice and resume worship. Then, exactly seven years later, the Lord will sound his trumpet in response to their trumpet of alarm, again on the Feast of Trumpets. He will return to the earth to save his nation and end the tribulation. Ten days later, following the feast's pattern, Israel will have been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Day of Atonement, and the millennium will begin five days later on the Feast of Tabernacles and will be celebrated for the entire seven days, symbolizing the millennium. This is a biblical scenario for the events leading up to and following what? The Battle of Gog Magog. As I said earlier, I believe the best timing for this battle is between the rapture of the church and the start of the tribulation. <laughs> yes, I could be wrong, but I believe that this scenario removes the sword or military might of Islam from the tribulation period. That will enable this Roman Antichrist to arise as both a political and spiritual leader who will delude many with his counterfeit form of Christianity, not as Islam, as some speculate today. You may not realize this, but some people think that the counterfeit form is not counterfeit form of Christianity, instead being against and therefore it's Islam. No, I think the sword and the power and might of Islam will be destroyed by the Gog-Magog battle. Certainly the religion of Islam can continue, but it'll be merely part of the final world religion. See, God's victory over Gog-Magog is going to prepare many to believe the testimony of the two witnesses that he will send at the beginning of the tribulation to Israel, according to Revelation 11.3. Others, however, will follow after false Christ, Matthew 24.5, and the ultimate Antichrist will lead great numbers away from God. Now, I would add that the burning of Gog's weapons are going to serve during the seven-year period as a constant reminder of God and his power and what he did at the Battle of Gog Magog. And it will remind them for seven years. Therefore, it'll be seven years burning the weapons. Now, the burying of the dead will be for seven months and graphically picture the need in Ezekiel 39, verse 16, might want to read that verse. They shall, then they shall cleanse the land. The burying of the bodies for seven months will be preparation for the spiritual cleansing of the nation when Christ returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation. Now, I certainly welcome questions. Send them in emails to my email at congdenministries.org you can find the address on our website and any discussion or thoughts you have relating to this scenario I'll enjoy reading and respond to you as soon as I can
For you, like you, I too am a student of the Bible. I'm ever learning about our great God. And now we're going to move on and we're going to kind of look at a final scenario of how feasible this is in our day. Having laid out my biblical scenario for Latter-day events, I'd now like to end this series by offering a present-day scenario that demonstrates why it is feasible that these events could begin to take place in the not-too-distant future. Consider first Gog's alliance. It's possible that the embryo of Gog's alliance is the Commonwealth of Independent States. This is a loose alignment of Eastern European and former Soviet satellite nations that came together to promote free trade, economic prosperity, and mutual defense. These goals are very similar to those goals of the European Union, and therefore they put these two alliances in direct competition economically as well as militarily. This competition could be the driving force behind the stage-setting phase in preparation for the Battle of Gog Magog. Furthermore, when Russia's memories of past incursions from Europe during the Napoleonic Wars and World War II are combined with present-day fear of a European invasion coming through the Ukraine, Russia has developed a great deal of fear of invasion. Now you say, well, those were way past in history. Now, when you consider the mindset of Europe and of Russia, they don't forget those historic events. Remember, they happened right in their own land, so to speak, in their homes. They don't forget that, and the fear does not just disappear with years. It continues. It's very easy to understand why Russia and its alliance will seek to strengthen its military defenses and increase also its revenue through increased sales of energy, especially oil and natural gas. Russian leaders believe the goal could be achieved through the events of the Ukrainian crisis and the Syrian crisis that is now in our news. Remember, southern Ukraine and Crimea are strategically situated on the Black Sea and provide Russia with its only year-round warm water access seaports. Through these ports, Russian naval and commercial shipping accesses the Mediterranean Sea and from there the entire world. This explains the recent movement of a Russian naval convoy through the English Channel and moving to the Mediterranean Sea and ultimately to the Black Sea ports. Russia must maintain access to these areas. Economically, the ports are crucial also for they allow Russia to export oil, natural gas, as well as grain, vegetables, sugar beets, sunflower seed, milk, and meat, major exports of Russia. Additionally, the land bridge of the Ukraine is Russia's last land defense against invasion. When you consider the economic and strategic value of southern U southeast Ukraine and Crimea to Russia, it's obvious that Russia cannot allow any loss of influence and control in these two areas. Russia's only option for countering this fear that they have is to build up their military forces 
and that costs money in an already stressed economy with the declining price of oil. Putin's solution is to add to Russia's revenue through increased sale of gas and oil resources extracted from the very country that are the named in Gog's alliance. When this increased production is considered in light of OPEC's declining supply, Russia sees a bright future for its energy incomes. Apart from a new competitor appearing in the arena of gas and oil suppliers, Russia foresees a perfect economic scenario for itself, a monopoly almost. But as Europe continues to increase its demand for energy, OPEC's supply is decreasing, but Russia's is increasing. Only two factors could de derail Russian expectations. A new competitor in the oil and gas market or a military invasion. Recently, a new competitor has appeared on the scene. You guessed it, it's the nation of Israel. Thanks to the process of fracking, a process that extracts oil from shale, Israel is fast becoming a major supplier of oil. In addition, God's chosen nation has discovered vast quantities of natural gas beneath her land, and Europe is eyeing this new source as a solution to its dependency on Russia. Russia may soon face the decision of how to deal with the new competitor. Suddenly, the Gog-Magog scenario seems feasible. We add to the feasibility when we consider that Israel's natural gas and oil could be the bait God will use to lure Gog and his allies to Israel as a fish on a hook in an attempt to take spoil and destroy her as prey. A Russian attack on Israel would require a strong military alliance and minimal opposition from other military forces such as Europe. As I explained in an earlier class, the only such military force is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This alliance of 12 Western nations was formed in 1949 with the single goal of protecting and defending Europe from Soviet aggression. Its majority member has always been the United States, which has supplied most of its funding and troops. European Union member nations have depended upon NATO for their security since its formation, and therefore they were able to minimize, if you will, their own national militaries and the costs of them. In reality, the U.S. has been the primary defense provider of Europe. Recently, Realities caught up with the EU as a result, first of the Ukrainian crisis and now the Syrian crisis. These events are giving the EU the excuse to ask its members to relinquish national identities and loyalties in exchange for a common defense and protection. One of these ways could well be a military force. This, by the way, is the very pattern we would expect if the EU is to become the world's global empire of Daniel. Essential and parallel to this concept is the need for a single military force to carry out the EU's policies and, when necessary, to enforce them. Recognizing this need, NATO has stepped up to demonstrate that it could become the EU's military. It's become increasingly apparent that NATO desires to be that force of the growing world empire. 
Recently, the EU has offered an alternative to NATO. They have begun discussions of a single European military force that would either work with or replace NATO. Now, with this growing strength of the EU and its desire for military, Russia undoubtedly will increase its military might. The Collective Security Treaty Organization, that's CSTO, is Russia's modern military counterforce to NATO. This is a six-member state or nation alliance that was formed in 1992. Now, I do not believe that it is a mere coincidence that these six nations are among those named by Ezekiel in what will eventually become Gog's 10-nation military alliance. Like Gog's alliance, CSTO is led by a Russian. These factors, along with the decline of the United States as a stabilizing power and influence around the globe, have greatly changed the balance of power in the world. Considering these conditions, it is reasonable to conclude that the European Union and the Russian alliance may soon emerge as opposing world powers. It's not hard to imagine how this scenario could set the stage for the Gog-Magog alliance to move against Israel. As students of the Bible, we must be aware of world events, never forgetting that one day Jesus Christ will come for his bride, the church. And the things prophesied in Ezekiel, in Daniel, the book of Revelation, they will happen. Paul gave a special message to the church at Thessalonica, which is very relevant to we today. He wrote this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 2. So if you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'll be reading verse 2 through 11. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. You are all the children of light and the children of day. We're not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. I hope you note here that we are not to be in the night and caught like a thief coming in the night. You see, we can recognize the signs that are leading up to the day of the Lord. Now, we won't be here during the tribulation. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we who have recognized that we are sinners, that we need to pay for the penalty of sin, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is 
death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We have recognized that Jesus Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, and paid our punishment for our sins. He then turns and offers that salvation as a gift, a gift that we must receive and accept him as our Savior. In other words, accept that he was our substitute. He paid the price of our sins, and now we are cleansed from all unrighteousness by his shed blood. We accept him as our Savior. He indwells us. We are in him. We become the bride of Christ. And he says that uh, we're not going to have to face the wrath to come. We're going to be removed at the catching up of the church or the bride. So we do have a hope, but we are also not to be caught unaware. That means we are to understand the events that are happening. We are to understand how the scriptures teach, and we should be able to see the stage setting, and we should tell others. We need to share the gospel of salvation to all that we meet because the days are growing short. I hope this series has been a help to you. I hope it's been useful in giving you a better understanding of God's plan for the latter days in Israel and all that is to come. Also, I hope it's given you some insight into current events of our day and their relationship to God's word. We are not to be caught asleep, if you will. CMI TV will also begin a new series of classes this coming January. I'll be teaching on the seven feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23. Now, many people say, oh, Leviticus, yeah, that's what I read when I can't sleep. And then you go to sleep. You say, no, that's not it. Actually, Leviticus is a very exciting book of the Bible. And chapter 23 is a very significant chapter in our entire Bible. You see, the seven feasts are seven prophetical appointments of God with the nation of Israel. Four of those appointments have been fulfilled, and three remain to be fulfilled after the catching up of the church. But also, these seven feasts graphically picture seven aspects of salvation and the Christian life, offering a very practical look into events in your life and in mine. That is, if you know the Lord as your Savior. Additionally, CMI-TV will be broadcasting more in our series on angels by Pastor David Moss. In the coming months, we will be having classes on the early church and its history. We'll be looking into the book of Romans, and we'll be doing additional prophetical studies in the book of Zechariah and Revelation and other prophets of the Lord. So please check our website for announcements as to when each of these new video teaching webcasts will be available. And always remember, all classes are free and they're available 24-7 on our website or by smartphone, by tablets, or our new Roku channel, Congdon Ministries. So if you have a Roku, go to your Roku channel store and search Congdon Ministries, and you'll find our channel there, and you can watch it on your television, as well as computers, smartphones, and tablets. Now, until we gather again to study our Lord's Word, may the Lord bless you mightily, and I will see you here or in the air.
Israel. 